0: And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, today's podcast is partially a sort of trip report of my summer vacation and partially how it ties back to Disney. As always, I went on a summer vacation. We went away from the parks. We went out of the state of Florida. We went somewhere else and we enjoyed ourselves. The family and I went off and and did some fun things. And What we chose to do this year was to to go up to some of the historical sites for the Revolutionary War. Now, I've been before to Boston, to Lexington, Concord, down into D.C., in New York, New Jersey, and some other areas. Uh, As you may recall, I talked a little bit about going to Quebec City last year, which was also a uh, sort of a Revolutionary War site. But um, the interesting thing is, this year we decided to go over and visit some other sites. And what you find is that many of the sites cross over between sort of the Civil War and the Revolutionary War. Some of them served both purposes, and some of the sites are near each other, even though they may have served for in the different wars. So it was worth spending some time in going around. Now, one of the interesting things I took away from all of this was that the history we see in textbooks is often incomplete, overgeneralized, or written in a way that shows the point of view that sounds nice, but may not be a fair or accurate representation of what happened in the world. And as I describe where we went and some of the things we saw, I want to point those out to you. And then as I promised, I'll come back and I'll talk about Disney some more and how this relates back to Disney. So we went into um, Pennsylvania and uh, Virginia this time. And a couple of the interesting places we visited were Valley Forge and Yorktown. So Valley Forge is where uh, Washington wintered his troops. And then uh, Yorktown is where the war ended, the Revolutionary War ended. And both interesting sites. And something interesting that came up as a result of all of this was that in Valley Forge, there was a uh, General von Steuben who uh, came over from Austria. And uh, he's he's the one who helped standardized the military practices for the troops so they became more efficient at using their weapons and fighting the British. So there was some tactics and some organization that happened there. And I find it interesting that, you know, he was a guy who just came over here and uh, and worked with the U.S. military, uh, worked with the, uh, the Patriots and tried to help things. What you find in the history books doesn't tell the whole story of how There was a number of people who hated Britain for their own reasons. Maybe they were oppressed in their own country. Maybe they just hated them because there was the ongoing war effort and the the British military machine that was going off and and, uh, the sun never sets in the British Empire. Maybe they had their own personal lacks to grind. Who knows? But a lot of them were uh, soldiers of fortune who were fighting for the patriots mainly because they hated the British. And that just, I find that kind of interesting how that all plays out. So here's von Steuben who comes in and he's got his own personal thing he wants to do. So he joins the Patriots and helps standardize the military practices. And in Yorktown, one of the key reasons that we won that battle was because of the French influence. And the French were kind of on the outside looking in. They really hated the British for their own reasons. And they really wanted to get involved in the conflict. But they needed to know that the Patriots could win before they would get involved. So you had Ben Franklin living in France who was... Uh, kind of helping understand what was happening in the war effort as he was doing his own negotiations, his own diplomacy. And the French had sent over a guy named Marquis de Lafayette. Now, de Lafayette, he was an interesting guy because he was a 19-year-old nephew uh, or some relation like that of the uh, king. And so he had his own thing going on and he was sort of the eyes and ears of the king over here. And Washington recognized... The importance of this guy. He was only 19, but he recognized his importance and made him a general and let him lead some of the army. So really kind of interesting. And he was influential in helping to ensure that the French did come to the aid of the Americans. The one thing the American patriots had missing was that they needed a fleet of ships. The Americans weren't particularly good at controlling shipyards and uh, getting ships out there. So they needed the French support to do that. So that's where they really uh, got the help. And I find it really interesting. We probably would not have won uh, in, the, uh, in the area of the Chesapeake or up in the Battle of Yorktown had it not been for the French being involved. And I find it kind of funny in our own American history how we kind of forget about the French sometimes. We liberated them. We helped them in during the Second World War and in the First World War. And we, you know, we, we deride them in some ways as, as Americans. And yet we probably wouldn't have run the, won the Revolutionary War had it not been for them. So it was just kind of interesting, just a side note there. Anyway, we visited Washington's Crossing. We went into Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is really interesting. Uh, It's it's really kind of neat to see all these different things in Philadelphia. And I had been there as a boy, you know, 30-odd years ago. And the interesting thing is they've changed a lot of the way they tell the story. It used to be, you know, here's something, and they just have the National Park Service tell you the story. Now they're storytelling. You know, you you could make the case that they pulled a page from Disney's playbook, and they're doing a better job of telling stories— and they're giving you information that really helps you to understand what the effort was all about, what Philadelphia was all about, what one specific thing was all about. They, they hire different tour guides to come in and give free tours. And there's a lot more historical context. They've done more in terms of uh, archaeology and excavating and learning more about the history. They've also uncovered more storybooks and, you know, people's tales, you know, that people wrote diaries and they wrote stories and they found a lot of those things. People did drawings, you know, freehand drawings of different things, and they used those to their advantage to help better paint the picture of what history was like. Now, maybe it's not 100% accurate, but it's a different view than maybe we're accustomed to in some ways, in some cases. The other thing I wanted to point out about Philadelphia and even Valley Forge was there's this little a little group that's called Once Upon a Nation. They have little park benches that are set up in various places. And you walk up to the park bench and you sit on the bench and there's a storyteller who tells you a one or two minute story about some event in American history that's a little bit different, right? Just not quite, not the story of General Washington, not the story of Alexander Hamilton. It's the story of some other guy, you know, the father of the Navy, the father of this, that... How they defeated uh, the Battle of the Itch when they when uh, everyone uh, had uh, uh, bed lice and whatever. How they managed to overcome that. Those kinds of things where they're telling you a story. It's well worth your time to sit down and hear those stories because you're getting this other view of history a little bit. Just a little bit more detail that kind of helps fill things in. So I find that totally fascinating. We went on from there and we went to Monticello. Monticello is uh, Jefferson's home uh, and really interesting. We learned a lot more about how involved he was in slavery and uh, how he really at heart was probably an abolitionist but realized he couldn't single-handedly change the slave trade. So he just accepted it as a fact of life, something interesting about that. And by the way, on display there, at least when we were there, was the original copy signed by Abraham Lincoln of the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, this is a historical document. Why was it only on display there for a short time? Well, it turns out that a lot of these historical sites... Have benefactors, people who have a lot of money, who donate money to restoring and maintaining these places. And this particular person, I don't know his name, uh, actually owns several historical documents, including this Emancipation Proclamation, and he keeps it in his private library. He has his own private viewing area. How it came to be his and how he has it and just decides to display it at the uh, Monticello, I really don't know. And it just it amazes me how our own history gets kind of lost like that to a degree and sold off to the highest bidder. But I'm glad at least he, he has the wherewithal to put it on display. And from what I understand, periodically he puts other things that he owns on display. So there's it's not all uh, lost there. It's it's something interesting in a way. From there, we went on down to Rich, Richmond uh, and uh, visited there. Uh, that was the uh, capital during the, uh, Confederate, uh, for the Confederates during the Civil War and also played a role in the Revolutionary War as well. Uh, We did also go over to Gettysburg at some point, and Gettysburg is really pretty interesting. It's the site of one of the last major battles of the Civil War. It is an absolutely fascinating place, well worth doing the uh, CD audio tour and driving around and seeing and understanding what it was all about. One of the interesting things we noticed, uh, Washington had tried some different tactics against the British. The British had very formalized things they did during war. They did certain things a certain way. There was a gentlemanliness to it all of a sort. I mean, I know it's still war, but there was a certain amount of gentlemanliness. And um, Washington countered that and did other things that were unexpected. And meanwhile, we come back to Gettysburg in the Civil War 80 years later, and both sides were doing exactly what the British would have done and being gentlemanly in the sense of the way they, um, they did the war. So you hear about large battles being raged on open fields in the middle of the day. Unbelievable, Right. Just the kinds of things, tactics that you would not expect to hear about. And when you hear the stories, you kind of go, wow, that's uh, really interesting. Um, and uh, interestingly, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, former president, has his, uh, his home that he had purchased in Gettysburg. He fell in love with Gettysburg and then military history there and actually purchased some property there to retire to. And he had a little mini golf course behind it. And people said he golfed too much and uh, wasn't an effective president as a result. Interesting how history repeats itself in a way. Um, We did go over into Lancaster as well. And Lancaster is really uh, fascinating in its own way in that it's uh, another place where a number of people of different uh, ancestry and their own religious beliefs came over and settled in this area. So William Penn had land in Pennsylvania that he was uh, letting people move into. He wanted to have the true freedom of a religion and wanted people to move there and uh, succeed. So he offered the land to the Amish people. They moved there and they've been pretty much the same for, you know, 400 years now uh, living there because they moved there in the 1600s. It was around the same time as the pilgrims, maybe a little after, but, uh, you know, in that same time frame. you don't hear about them in the same breath as you do the pilgrims. The pilgrims have sort of this uh, everybody looks at them as going, wow, you know, that's it's sort of a sentimental thing. But the Amish have been there just as long. The Amish don't, get the, uh, don't really get the press the same way because they still lead kind of a, a life of, uh, I guess you could say it's a, it's a poor man's life, right? They, they, they're, far, they're simple farmers. They educate themselves to a certain level and they keep a closed community. So, you know, they're out there and they're doing that. And that's really interesting to kind of view it through that lens and think about the history of them having been there as long as some of the other settlers. Uh, We also went down to Jamestown. Jamestown is the site where the first settlers came to the Americas. And um, we had an archaeological tour there. And it was absolutely spectacular. The the archaeological tour was so much fun. We heard all these stories about the archaeology and what happens and how uh, how the community came together and how they fell apart and how they came back together. And the archaeologist is telling us a couple of stories there. And a couple of things here of note. One is that... The reason that people came to Jamestown was that they were looking for riches. They were looking for fortune, right? They were coming to exploit the Americas for gold because they had heard there was gold in the hills, and they were coming there to get it. And so, it's not quite as um, easy to, to understand and you know kind of sympathize with them in a way, in the same way you would the Pilgrims, because they came before the Pilgrims, but the Pilgrims get all the press because they were here, you know, trying to live their lives. So the people of Jamestown, they lived here and they were trying to trying to get rich. And uh, you've heard the story of uh John Smith and Pocahontas, which is factually inaccurate, and he's standing there and he looks out at the landscape and the landscape you're at the Chesapeake Bay, you're on the you know you're near the water, it does roll a little bit, but there are no mountains, and there are no waterfalls and he points that out and he goes there's an there's an animated version of a film about Pocahontas that doesn't really paint the picture. Do you see any whispering willows? Do you see any waterfalls? No, you don't and it's interesting because he, you know, he's like trying to tell us the story. And it turns out that John Smith was not the one with uh, Pocahontas. It was actually John Rolfe. And Pocahontas moved to Britain uh, at some point after he met her and married her. And uh, she perished. She died actually in Britain, so in England. So kind of interesting how that all fits together. It's a different story. And when you hear it that way, you think to yourself, wow, you know, did Disney get it wrong or did Disney just tell a story? And that's kind of the piece to the puzzle I'll come back to in just a minute. So interesting stuff, the way this, uh, this all plays out, and it's really kind of neat to hear the stories and get, the, get a tr- better understanding of what the world is uh, when you're visiting places. And the last place we went to on our trip was Colonial Williamsburg. Now, Colonial Williamsburg is a uh, city from the uh, 1700s uh, that mo- went into the 1800s. It was the capital for some period of time of uh, Virginia. And uh, a lot of interesting things happened there. And so they've recreated this sort of town Many of the buildings are original or are reconstructed on the original sites where they were, so it has some historical significance. Now, the, one, the funny thing to me was, and how this relates back to Disney, you go into the visitor center and you walk in and you go through a ticket booth and you purchase tickets to go in there. Then you go in and it feels almost Disney-like. You're in this place where you're going into these houses and there's a storyteller there telling you about what it was like to live in these places, uh, and live in this time. And you see the carriages going around and you see all these other things happening and you start to think to yourself, this is almost Disney-like. Sort of the, the dichotomy, the, the difference is that on the Disney side, you're telling a more or less fictitious story in one location. And here you're telling a more or less historically accurate story in the location where it happened. But they're both stories, right? And who tells a better story? And when you watch the Disney stories and you see them unfold, you start to think to yourself they're more compelling and interesting because they're telling you something. The funny thing about Jamestown it's it's not really funny, haha. But is that they have uh, an endowment that maintains most of their property, and they charge admission to go in, and that's how they that's how they keep break even on the whole thing. But they're losing money year after year because their storytelling is very different and the way they tell it and how they do it and how they manage themselves is very different than say the way Disney does it. So there's an interesting little piece to the puzzle here that you may not be aware of. Disney had planned to create Disney's America and that would have been near the Manassas Battlefield rather than near Williamsburg, uh, up about, um, what is that, about 60 miles northwest of uh, where we were in in, uh, Williamsburg. And they had this idea to create it, and Michael Eisner thought, you know, we should do that, and in 1992 started planning up for it after he had visited, not surprisingly, Williamsburg. He had thought, you know, this is going to be an interesting idea. We could create a a town that's a fictitious town that would have all these different things in it that might make it interesting and compelling for guests to come here and hear the Disney story of how these things go. Because one of the things he noticed was similar to what I noticed, that it was they didn't do a good job of telling a story. And that he thought he could do it better, so he had this plan for creating a, uh, a theme park, basically that would be the America's Theme Park, and it would be uh, be this clever idea where he would tell the story of different different parts of history, and uh, the park would be broken up in different ways. It got pretty far in the planning stages, and uh, they would actually have different themed areas like the Crossroads USA. That would be a pre Civil War era village. They would have Native America that would talk about, uh, reflected the tribes in the area. The President's Square that would be something like the Hall of Presidents. Uh, they would have a Civil War fort. Uh, a place called Enterprise was a mock factory town uh, that it, uh, highlighted American ingenuity. We the People, a replica of Ellis Island. Uh, the Family Farm, a recreation of an authentic farm where guests could have had the opportunity to see different types of industries. State Fair, an area based on 1930s Brooklyn with a live show about baseball in Coney Island. Victory Field, where guests would have an experience of what America's soldiers faced in the defense of freedom during both of the World Wars, and so on. So they would have had all these different things out there, and that was sort of the plan. They had it all mapped out. They had it all figured out. They had the land they were trying to acquire uh, near the battlefield. And <clears throat> by 1993, they were trying to convince the Virginia legislature to give them some money, some for road, road improvements, some for other activities uh, related to maintaining the, uh, the property. And uh, they were starting to make some traction on this. And it started to come together as a real idea. And it was an interesting, it was an interesting thing they were doing. And, you know, I was kind of torn on it. You know, again, I love going to visit some of the old sites. I like hearing the historical tales. When I went to Yorktown, the redoubts that, they, that the, um, the French and the Americans took in order to uh, end, essentially end the Revolutionary War, they're understated, right? You go up to them. You can hear a National Park Service guide uh, person talking about what happened there and so forth. And then you walk up to them and you can go through them. And you can walk through these. They're just mounds of, of, of dirt. And they had the cannons in there that they were firing. And the Americans took one and the French took the other one. And there's nothing, there's nothing there. there you, know, you, can, you can listen to a story. You can walk it yourself. You can explore it yourself but there's no there's no theme park around it and i you know there's something to be said for that but on the other side when i went down to williamsburg when they were trying to tell a story i thought that it lacked a little bit it was maybe not as good and then back to my pocahontas story was disney, was disney intentionally telling the wrong story or were they telling a story that it's fanciful but it's a better story it makes for a much more intriguing storyline and uh you know it's it tells a better tale of american history in a way so you know, you kind of have to balance them and you have to think about what's better. So it was, um, it was interesting. You know, I, I, I'm torn on whether this would have worked for Disney or not if they'd have built Disney's America. So um, Disney purchased about 3,000 acres of land in, uh, in the area. Uh, the governor was in support of it. Several state legislatures were uh, in support of it. Bob Weiss, Disney's senior vice president, uh, in November of 1993, said, this is not a Pollyanna view of America. We want to make you a Civil War, War soldier we want to make you feel what it was like to be a slave or what it was like to escape through the Underground Railroad. And uh, Peter Rummel, the president of Disney Design and Development, said, we want to make history real, but also make it fun. When asked about the Civil War, he said, we want to talk about an intelligent story properly told that shouldn't offend anybody, but we won't worry about being politically correct. So, Because of the location and because it was near Manassas, that's, you know, a suburb of D.C. more or less. I mean, it's a short drive from D.C. So they had had the plan and it looked like, you know, maybe it would come together uh, because of the location things might work out. But several prominent historians came out against it. David McCullough, uh, who's uh, one of the Protect Historic America historians, described Disney's America as a potential commercial blitzkrieg predicting the same urban sprawl that surrounds Disneyland and Disney World and and thinking that might happen in Virginia. James McPherson added that sprawl would desecrate the ground over which men fought and died. Disney also faced opposition from groups concerned that historical events, such as the Civil War and slavery, could be trivialized by teaching history through entertainment and possibly selling little souvenir slave ships. As the controversy railed on, Michael Eisner had to disavow some of the earlier comments, saying that it would make you feel what it was like to be a slave, saying that Weiss misspoke and wasn't used to speaking to the media. And then Rummel uh, came back and said some things like, those are harsh words for a production that not only hasn't opened, but hasn't even been fully written. He stressed, I'm not sure we have a certain direction yet. Our thoughts are evolving. So, Kind of, you know, you could hear they were backing down and feeling the protests and feeling the way people were talking about it. Now, on the other hand, there was a number of people who wanted Disney to go there. There was a number of landholders who thought, you know, urban sprawl may not be a bad thing. We'll get more people buying our land. We'll get more traffic through here. We can sell more goods, whatever it might be. People saw the potential for uh, employment, that there would be jobs and uh, things to do. So there was the potential to get people there. But then on the other side, operators of Colonial Williamsburg feared that Disney's America would siphon away tourists spending time there instead of coming all the way to Williamsburg. So in the end, uh, there was a lot of of play, a lot of political play to try and uh, make this go away. Michael Andrews, a Civil War buff uh, who was a Democrat from Texas, introduced a resolution in June of 1994 saying that he was not opposed to the Disney or the park as long as the project was built in another location which is kind of funny because he thought so close to DC might be problematic. He was joined in support by other people who said that it should not be taught by the Civil War history should not be taught by Minnie Mouse and Donald Duck. Michael Eisner shot back. Disney's America not only will not replace historic sites, but rather will add to their luster by enthusing our guests about events that occurred there and the people who took part in them. We're confident our project will actually encourage more people to visit historic areas, and we believe our presentation of the American heritage can make a significant national contribution to the important cause of historic preservation. We plan to use all of the tools available to us filmmaking, animation, environments, music, interactive media, live interpretation to bring the American experience to life. We're working with other historians and other experts to make Disney's American engaging and genuine encounter with America's past. Together, we've identified some common themes that run through the American experience our persistent resistance to injustice, our quest for tolerance and inclusion, our history of rising to challenges, our faith in the promise of the future, and our belief that ordinary people can accomplish extraordinary things. We believe that every person, particularly the children, who can touch history and sense the emotions of the time or the event, will be impelled to learn more. This is the vision and purpose of Disney's America. So it continued back and forth for a period of time until about September of 1994, uh, when uh, Peter Rummel came back and said... We remain convinced that a park that celebrates America and an exploration of our heritage is a great idea, and we will continue to work to make it a reality. However, we recognize that there are those who have been concerned about the possible impact of our park and historic sites in this unique area, and we've always tried to be sensitive to the issue. While we do not agree with all their concerns, we're seeking a new location so we can move the process forward. Despite our confidence that we would eventually win the necessary approvals, it has become clear that we could not say when the park would be open or even when we could break ground. The controversy over building in Prince William County has diverted attention and resources from creative development of the park. Implicit in our vision for the park is the hope that we will be a source of pride and unity for all Americans. We certainly cannot let a particular site undermine that goal by becoming a source of divisiveness. So, by the end of September they'd announced that they were not going to build the park. So, at the end of 1994, it was pretty much done and they weren't going to they weren't going to be building it. It I find it really interesting that, you know, some of the comments that they made because something else I noticed about uh, the Colonial Williamsburg site is in order to stay afloat and make things happen, they actually sell tickets to a couple of other area attractions. And those two attractions are Bush Gardens, Williamsburg, and Water Country USA, a water park. And those two really are non-controversial at all. And they've been there for a long time, I, I know. But it's interesting how... You have Williamsburg in these two theme parks that are nearby, and no one bats an eye. And is it because they're smaller and they're not Disney? Is it because they're not storytelling? They're just doing thrill rides? I'm not really sure. It's just kind of interesting and fascinating to me that here's Colonial Williamsburg that, to me, and just my personal opinion about it, I felt like it was kind of a yawn. I like the fact that there 's history being presented there. I like the fact that there's some interesting things there specifically that there's some buildings that are original buildings or slightly refurbished buildings that have been uh, redone in a little bit in a way. I, I like you know that there 's the, the uh, governor 's mansion and you know there 's the other things that are there and it 's interesting to me and I like the fact that they 're trying to bring history to life there 's a uh, a dig there where um, there was an archaeological expedition that went out in the '60s to look through a site. And they dug out some dirt and they put it back in without regrading the land and not going through it in an archaeological sense. They just wanted to get down to the foundation of a building that had been there. So they decided to go ahead and let kids dig through it and go through the artifacts, even though they might be from different time periods because you don't know know, what time period it would have been from because the fill just went back in there. But at least they let the kids get involved and engaged and become a part of it. They become amateur archaeologists. I like that. There's a lot of that kind of thing going on there. But the way they tell the story and the overall feeling of the place just felt, I'll use the word hokey, my wife did not see it that way, Uh, and several other people I talked to thought it was really interesting and they did a good job of explaining things. So I don't want to denigrate it because that's not my intent here. Just to me personally, as a sort of a Disney kind of guy, I saw it as like Disney light and it kind of didn't impress me in that sense. Um, And like I said, I went out to... Other historical sites where I thought they did a tremendous job of storytelling and letting you see history and touch history to a degree. Some of these brick buildings that you can actually put your fingers on and touch. There's something kind of cool about that. So there's that, right? There's those pieces to the puzzle where it just feels different, and you feel like you know there. It maybe it just doesn't. It doesn't work for me. That doesn't mean it doesn't work at all. Just for me, it didn't work, and I find that kind of interesting. And I think there's an opportunity there, for maybe Disney or someone else to tell a different story and maybe bring it together in a different way. You know, there's there's so many, things, so many different ways you can tell a story, and maybe Manassas and that National Battlefield was not the right place to tell the story. But I do think that Disney could do a good job of telling a story somewhere and uh, helping us understand American history. There, like I said, history books don't really give you the full picture. There's things missing out of the history books that need to be told differently, and we're missing those. And I'd like to hear more of that story and I'd like to understand a little bit more of it. And I have to wonder, you know, when Walt Disney decided to build Disney World and he uh, he bought he purchased the land in Florida and then he convinced the government of Florida to let him uh, have autonomy over the land and do the things he wanted to do. I wonder if he'd have built that bought that property 30 years later in the 1990s if things had been different, right? If if things had come out differently just because the time was different. I wonder if that would have been the same sentiment that they had uh in Virginia. The only difference would have been there's no historical sites there for civil war battles or revolutionary war battles, but otherwise would the sentiment have been the same? You're, you know, you're taking away land and want to build a theme park. Is that a good thing? I don't know. So, you you have to wonder a little bit if timing has something to do with it and Walt Disney himself being the icon that he was and being able to acquire that land himself, if that had a different uh feel to it than, say what you might get if someone were uh, Michael Eisner was buying land right in a different era. It, it just it, it, you have to wonder just a little bit. I don't know which way it would have turned out. I have no way of knowing that, but I find it really interesting. And as I look through the history of you know Disney's America project and how that didn't work out, I just was kind of fascinated. you know the story of seeing all this stuff, this Revolutionary War stuff is really amazing. There's great museums, there's great you know storytelling, there's really good things there. Could Disney have done it differently or has everyone else upped their game because of sort of the Disney influence? Over the last 20 years, you've seen these all these sites grow and they're doing a better job of marketing themselves and presenting themselves and having museums and having document you know, all the things on display. You go into the uh, Independence Hall in Philadelphia and you can see the uh, Articles of Confederacy you can see the declaration of independence and you can see the constitution original documents right there on display and you go to other places and you can see where they were written and where they were worked on and whatever you know all of these different things and then as you go around and you listen to all these patriots and you listen to these stories of all these patriots you know you hear the stories and sometimes it changes your opinion of who they were were based on some of the things that they might have done and sometimes it refreshes sort of the nature of who you thought they were. You know, the, these guys would fight with each other. They didn't all get along 100% of the time. They had their own issues. And, you know, they, we miss that in the storylines. Um, and the, the distances they traveled were so great. And often it was by carriage and by horseback and by walking. And they traveled these uh, tremendous differences. Think about the distance between Quebec City and uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, or Yorktown, for that matter. You know, and the distance is great. So you have to think about, you know, some of these guys did different things and all of the patriots that you hear about, all the people who became the first five or six presidents of the United States were all engaged in this conflict because they saw a greater opportunity for us as a nation to grow. And it would be interesting to hear Disney's perspective on what that might mean, you know, what it would be like and what stories they could tell. I guess we'll never know what stories they would tell, but I found it interesting to kind of stop and think about that as I was looking at these different places and kind of uh, engaging in it. So there you go. That is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's sort of that look back in history, and uh, sort of my own little trip report on, on traveling out. But I wanted to relate it back to Disney in some way and tell you a little bit more about the story. And by the way, speaking of the, and by the way, speaking of the history of Walt Disney World, I do have my lost and found in Disney World sequence. Uh, I do have my Lost and Found in Disney World series ongoing. You can go check it out. I'll put a link to it in my show notes page, and you can go out and uh, just look for it on YouTube. Uh, It's kind of an interesting look back at the history of Walt Disney World. So there you go. So that's it for this week. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now.